This episode was recorded at the year ahead, an international security, intelligence and defense outlook for 2018 at the Canadian War Museum on December 7, 2017. This annual conference is organized by the Centre for Security, Intelligence and Defense Studies at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. The following panel is titled Managing the Canada-US Relationship and features Jim Ferguson, Deputy Director of the Centre for Defence and Security Studies at the University of Manitoba, and Christopher Sands, Senior Research Professor at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, this is not really about the new defence relationship with the United States in North America. It's better understood as the evolving defense relationship with the United States and North America. I should apologize. Uh, many of the things I'm gonna say would have been helped with a lot of nice overheads, and including, which is rare for an academic, an org chart. Uh, but I hate PowerPoint. It usually breaks on me, and, and I'm an old guy, and I don't remember day to day what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, so, but I did get them, and I thank the organizer for putting up a roughly polar projection map of North America, because it is important in, in this. I'm sure everyone here is fully aware of the depth and breadth of the Canada-U.S. defense relationship. Uh, but, however, when it comes to the North American component of that relationship, that is another different question. Um, everyone knows, I hope, what NORAD stands for, because this will be the focus of my, my presentation. Uh, but once you get beneath that, you, most people in Canada, for reasons partially what I call the Canadian psychosis when it comes to our relationship with the United States across the board, but particularly in the defense realm, and particularly in North America, uh, tend to sort of shy away from it, if I put it that way. And part of it is what uh, I like to call, whenever we talk about Canada-US defense relations in North America, one word always pops up in the Canadian dialogue. And that, that is the emotional, ideological, political football of sovereignty. Uh, I'm not gonna say anything about sovereignty unless you ask me. Uh, so I'll leave it at that. Uh, what I want to talk about is basically three things, and if I have some time before I get uh, the hook, uh, I'll even mention BMD at the end. Uh, but BMD is not, in many ways, is not central to the evolving relationship. Uh, and, but there are elements which are going to emerge, I think, in the future, which may alter that, uh, that consideration. As you probably know the North American Defense Command, this year, Aerospace Defense Command, there's a Freudian slip. Mm -hmm. uh, NORAD celebrates next year its 60th anniversary. And the fundamental mission of NORAD, the, the unique, the only international binational defense arrangement in the world, a very unique arrangement, um, Central to, the, to NORAD is this three objectives for the defense of North America. And they, they are summed up, if you talk to NORAD people, in three words. To detect, to deter, and to defend. And each of those three areas, partially what's driving the evolutionary uh, nature of the relationship over the in the today and into the future, is that there are capability gaps and command and control seams creating deficiencies both in the ability of NORAD to detect, the ability of NORAD to deter, and the ability of NORAD to defend. I don't want to make you, make you all nervous about a future uh, because it's, don't come to extreme conclusions about that, but that is sort of central to the issues which are driving this, or perceptions with the driving, which are driving this. I'm going to talk about three areas. One, and I'll try to put it in chronological order in terms of the year ahead and then things going on which will work down in subsequent years. The first is command and control arrangements in the command. The second is uh, next year's, or next year, two years from now, the unified command plan uh, of the United States. And the third is the ongoing study, uh, which I can trace back, but basically what is known as the evolution of North American defense study, or project. Uh, that study was briefed in 2016 to the Permanent Joint Board on Defense. The response, as far as we know, 
was that this is too much, there has to be priorities set, and this year, earlier this year, it was briefed again to the PJBD on which priorities were set, and I'll talk a bit about those priorities in terms of the evolutionary process. I should also add, you will notice in Strong, Secure, and Engaged that the primary references to North American defense relate to modernization, but this is more than modernization, this is, but modernization is part of this. <clears throat> Let me first talk about the command and control uh, changes which are likely to occur. They haven't been approved yet. They have been exercised the past two years in what is known as Vigilance Shield. These are the annual exercises uh, that are undertaken by NORAD concerning the defense of North America. When you look at the command and control structure of NORAD, uh, command authority is vested in the commander of NORAD, and in her absence today would be the, who is an American, has always been an American, and in her absence would be the deputy commander of NORAD. In terms of you, when you think about the conducting the defense of North America for its air defense mission, and there are, that is one of its three missions, air defense, aerospace warning, and uh, maritime warning, I'm not going to talk about maritime warning at all. Uh, when you look at that, the way it basically is structured is you have the command located in Colorado Springs, which undertakes what can be loosely called the distribution or the air tasking orders in case of conflict or war with an air threat to North America. These tasking orders, which basically allocate or distribute the resources, the air assets which are provided out of the office of the Chief of the Defense Staff and out of the Secretary of Defense in the United States, uh, then are distributed. They are distributed to the regional commands, Canada Region Command in Winnipeg, Alaska Regional Command in, uh, in uh, Anchorage, and Continental Regional Command in Tyndall in Florida. They, in turn, then conduct the battle. They're the battle managers. So although it's a binational command, because there's a binational commander, in fact, when you look at the exact way in which one plans to conduct the air defense of North America, it is really still national. Although part of the air tasking is the ability to move assets, Canadian into the other, into the American regions, or American assets into the Canadian region. That's the basic structure. What the exercises has changed in part because of the dual hatting of the commander of NORAD, who is also the commander of U.S. Northern Command. And let me emphasize this to you. U.S. Northern Command does not have an air component to it. NORAD is the air component to the defense of North America. And there's a, many people misperceive that, in a sense, that NORAD as an air command is the air component of U.S. Northern Command. That is not the case. But the demands on the commander at the strategic level in Colorado Springs is a function of a variety of issues surrounding what Northern Command does, particularly def uh, defense support to civil authorities. You've seen the recent hurricanes it's, uh, in the United States, and how you can guess how much time that has subsumed of Northern Command's uh, efforts over the past several months. Uh, the notion is, or the ex what was exercised, is the need to provide a more strategic level focus to the command NORAD's command, and in so doing, the need to generate what is known as a NOR NORAD Combined Forces Air Component Command beneath it, in which the air tasking orders, the authority of the commander of NORAD would then drop down to the commander of the Combined Forces Air Com Component Command, which then in turn would generate the tasking orders out to the regional commands, and, with, and I should add, within the continental United States, you also have the eastern and western air defense sectors, which are below the regional commands. We don't have in Canada any air defense sectors, nor when Alaska, Alaska is a, a census sector, but it's actually a regional command. The notion of this is that it's designed to be regionally agnostic, because whenever one starts to think about, or ideally in a resource-free world, when one designs the ideas of where to put this, and the images that can be generated or created when you, where you put it relate, can generate issues concerning the sovereignty issues and Canada's subordination to U.S. Northern Command, all problematic images that are generated which need to be dispelled. 
But the realities of finite resources, and you look at capacity of the current combined air operations centers, the one in each of the regional commands, the only one that has the capacity to do it is Continental Region Command. So what is effectively being envisioned is there will be this Combined Forces Air Component Command under following the natural pattern of NORAD and Canada U.S. command structures under a U.S. commander with a Canadian deputy and underneath that will be, will remain Continental Regional Command and the other two regional commands. The problem again, because of resources, what will happen is that the command, the new commander, if this proceeds, because it hasn't been approved, it hasn't gone up the chain to Ottawa and to, to the Pentagon yet, but I think it will in the next year or so, uh, and this change will start to occur. The problem of resources is what you're going to get as you have in NORAD today and so many other places in the military world. The commander of the Combined Forces Air Component Command will be dual-hatted as the commander of Continental Regional Command, and the Deputy Canadian Commander currently of Continental Regional Command will be dual-hatted as the commander of the Combined Forces Air Component Command. <clears throat> yeah, it took me a lot of time to get my head around this stuff. Uh, command and control does not come easy to academics. Uh, the image it creates, however, and this is where the political policy problem starts to emerge, is it starts to create an image that, in fact, what's happening is that the regional commands, particularly for Canada, Canada Regional Command, is actually falling under Continental Regional Command. We are getting subordinated. And then, in effect, what that means is that the regional commands are becoming air defense sectors. And in those terms, battle management will be centered in Tyndall, where the regional commands, the sector commands, are by and large simply executing orders. And then the concern then emerges, well, what that means is Continental Regional Command, because it's in southern Florida, will prioritize defense of the continental United States rather than the way you attempt to manage or ensure that both nations are properly covered and assets are dealt with in a proper battle management space. There is also, of course, in this new construct, a bigger problem. Well, not a bigger problem, but a, a problem for the forces, and that's bodies. Uh, because it doesn't mean, and one of the other elements of concern that emerges in terms of fears and images, is that if that's what's going to happen, what is the NORAD structure, the people in NORAD, Canada NORAD, going to be doing in Colorado Springs? Because Colorado Springs now suddenly starts to acquire a, an image even more that is really U.S. Northern Command. And then we are subordinate, again, now to U.S. support Northern Command. Now, this is not the way it's actually being structured to work out. But there are these fears and of images that have to be clearly understood uh, because the idea is basically to replicate the current commander to the regions. Commander allocates air tasking orders, distributes assets for the, the air battle, air defense battle, which is then executed by the regional commands. That is simply moving down, and that same structure and process is supposed to stay in place. But then that hinges partially upon who's in command in Tyndall and their own personalities, because personalities do start to matter in this. So there are a variety of concerns, and I think you can get an idea of the policy concerns that come out of this simple attempt to be more efficient and effective relative to the complexities that currently face the command structure in Colorado Springs. And as I said, this is going to play itself out. And ideally, in the best of worlds, in my view, because NORAD runs beneath, generally runs, stays beneath the, the political radar, it can all happen and no one will be paying attention and it will all work itself out. That's what John Diefenbaker thought in 1958. Well, it didn't work out very well because it blew up in his face after he signed the NORAD agreement. So there is the question of how to, to, to make sure that there's a clear understanding that the way the structure is designed to play out and how it will play out and what I call the law of unintended consequences uh, is to make it clear that this is not about subordination of Canada, this is not about subservient, this is not about undermining the fundamental equality of the binational relationship. And that's what makes it different from the inequalities associated with multilateral arrangements such as NATO, 
which is run on a lead nation command structure. So that's the first point. The second point is the unified command plan, mandated by Congress on a biennial basis. I should point out that when Congress first dropped the regional command idea out of the Goldwater and Nichols Act in 85, in 85, the military didn't like it. But Congress had something which the military could not ignore, money. Uh, so there has been long been, from what I understand, talking to a lot of uh, Americans about this, there's long been unhappiness with the regional command structure. Well, whether or not the United States, the Pentagon, is going to go after the UCP, uh, and there has been a variety of rumors, there's been suggestions that Northern Command will be folded into Southern Command, but the key area of concern that's emanating within strategic thinking circles in the United States is that the regional command structure as it now is, is problematic because the nature of the world has changed in terms of the threat environment. And I'm not going to go into details of a threat environment breach. The military do those much better than I can, not least of all because they have access to things I don't have or they won't tell me about, uh, is in formulated in classical military terms in three concepts. The threat environment today and more importantly in the future is one of trans-regional, multidimensional, and multifunctional. And the regional commands are not structured, that structure is not efficient and effective to manage what is required, to use another term they talk, they're talking about now, a global command construct. Now the US will do what the US does, but because NORAD sits there, of course, how the United States, if, and again this is an if, into 2019, if they restructure, this will have implications. To give you just one example of the trans and regional nature of this element of a global command construct, if you look at the Rush, Russia as an adversary, or in military terms, the Russian threat, the Russian threat affects NORAD because of long-range aviation aircraft, new generations of, particularly right now, of cruise missile capabilities, which I'll talk briefly about, but it also is within the area of operational responsibility of U.S. Northern Command, of European Command, of Central Command, and, and Pacific Command. How can you manage the global battle space in the future uh, in a construct which creates all these themes? So that is something that's coming down the pipeline which uh, Canada, Canadians need to be aware of what this potential implications were. Finally, briefly about EVONAD, the evolution of NORAD defense, the priorities. The priorities established in terms of the studies they are doing is as follows. One will be completed shortly and then the others will follow depending on how things work out. Uh, air, not surprising, none of this is surprising. Air, maritime, cyber, aerospace, and space. The aerodomain, of course, in terms of detect, relates primarily to the question of the North Warning System. Obsolete, outdated, incapable of, of dealing with the new generation of long-range aviation, particularly the launch points for air-launch cruise missiles. North War Warning System was established where it was in terms of the launch points of uh, Soviet bombers in order to uh, intercept the bombers. Now that has moved further and further northward into over the Arctic, including launch points from Russia itself. That system cannot detect any of it, and it cannot pick up cruise missiles unless it's really lucky. It needs to be modernized, it needs to be replaced, it needs to be moved, and the land-based system will be insufficient. It will also need what they, what's called a system of systems, land, air, and potentially space systems. There's also issues in terms of cruise missile detection capabilities that will be required if you can't get the launchers, which then make people think, oh, potentially going back to some sort of layered system, of Mid-Canada Pine Tree and Dewline of the 1950s, and then the questions of point defense of critical infrastructure in North America. This is all put in warfighting terms, but it's really about detecting and deterring, which has to be kept in everyone's mind instead of making the improper conclusion that this is all oh, just the military thinking about warfighting. It is political in its nature of linked to deterrence. It also includes issues about Basing, the forward operating locations are not in the right place relative to the distance of the legs of fighter interceptors to go after the bombers. The, this issue of where you're going to put it in the Arctic, and there are lots of things, issues, and you can start to imagine the billions of dollars going ching, 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 ching as we go along. And by the way, 
the United States and Canada have agreed as in, with the North Warning System of the past to split the cost 60-40 again. But the key issue there is what's in the 60-40 box and what's not in the 60-40 box, like environmental cleanup, if that's necessary in the Arctic. This all, the basing also brings, because if you look in terms of the air, if you had the, uh, an overhead of the patterns of long-range Russian aviation bombers, what those things they're doing right now, also runs down the eastern side of Greenland. Greenland is within European command, so European command is involved in this. You then now so also get into issues of submarine launch, long-range submarine launch and surface launch cruise missiles, these are right now, which are, can be launched north of the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap. That is not in the AOR of NORAD. It's not even linked into, which is the maritime side of the US Northern Command. There is a seam there, again, with European Command and NATO and the command and control arrangements in order to manage that problem, because once that missile is in the air, it's an air defense problem now. That's NORAD. So this brings questions about command and control in the maritime sector. Uh, it then goes there and says, no, sorry, I'm not, I have two minutes, huh? Cyber, cyber wasn't supposed to be on the list, but there was an MOU between the U.S. and Canadian at the senior levels which put it on NORAD's list. And I shouldn't say NORAD. EVONAD is a tri-command study. It's chaired by a senior representative from the Canadian Joint Operations Command, the deputy commander of NORAD, and the deputy commander of U.S. Northern, Co Northern Command. They are the ones who are driving these studies. So it's not NORAD per se, because some people, when you hear NEVONAD, think it's the evolution of NORAD. It's not. It's more than the evolution of NORAD. Aerospace is about the future. This is an interest, really interesting, and if young students here are looking for something really neat and interesting to do a thesis on in the future, aerospace is the world that is neither air nor space. It's suborbital space. It is neither sovereign air territory nor necessarily within the realm of the international status of outer space. These are hypersonic weapons, unmanned vehicles, which pose future threats which are identified that need to be dealt with now before they materialize, which is considered inevitable. Space, I will leave alone. So these are the elements that I hope I've been able to outline to you of the, what's going on in terms of North American air defense, whether it means NORAD may expand its missions uh, in order to manage these threats given the political and strategic value of that binational command arrangement for Canada, and it's really Canada that generates a lot of value out of this arrangement, is a set of different questions. But let me leave you with one, because one of the areas we really get, Canada, Canadians always get concerned about is land, American soldiers. And if you go back to the stand-up of US Northern Command, you may have read some of the pieces coming out of the academic community about American soldiers in Canada. You've seen most recently in terms of the hurricanes, the role that Canadian support has played, Canadians sending support to the American defense support to civil authorities. And there's also a new, no shortage of examples of the United States sending us support based on bilateral arrangements and existing protocols. One of the issues that popped into my mind is the predicted long overdue big earthquake off the West Coast. Neither the Canada, the Canadian forces, nor the United States or the United States forces are prepared for what that will mean in terms of support to civil authorities. The question I sort of put to everyone is, in that circumstance, in that potentiality, is bilateral arrangements and ex the existing arrangements sufficient to provide an effective response to such a massive, massive catastrophe? And that is something that I think that needs to be also considered in the context of North American defense cooperation and how do this efficiency, efficiently and effectively with both countries facing so much severe demands on their resources. So I'll end there and you can ask me about missile defense later. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I already have missile defense written down as a question will come up later. Uh, uh, Christopher Sands, uh, more for the econ side of things and more things Trumpness. More things Trumpness. Um, well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Um, Twice in my life, uh, I was 
connected with Carleton. Once when I was having what you would call your third year, it was my junior year abroad, and I came up and studied at Carleton as just a regular undergrad political science student. And then I, I had the good fortune to come up for a Fulbright and spend a year at Nipsia. And one thing that's never failed is that the kind of conversations that I can have at Carleton with faculty, with students, with the kind of audiences that you bring together are just at a level of sophistication I miss every time I go away back to the US. I mean, nobody wants to talk about these things like I do. And maybe the most telling example is that you said, Jim, some people think when they hear the term Evonad, and even if I said that in Washington, they'd say, what? They don't think anything. But here, you all nodded. Yeah, yeah, well, that makes sense. What a great crowd you are. So <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the economic consequences of, of Trump coming in. And I, I, you know, vanity is a terrible thing in an academic. So I decided to pinch a line from John Maynard Keynes' famous uh, treatise, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, which was about how in the structuring of the peace after World War I, there were economic consequences that would drive us back to conflict. And so I played with that a little bit and I thought about the economic consequences of the peace with Trump because in many ways, last time I was here in fact, we were talking about how the Trudeau government had deftly found a way to get along with Donald Trump and invested a lot of time in trying to reach out to the White House, be nice to Ivanka and Jared, um, reach out to governors, and it had a very sophisticated strategy to avoid conflict, to stay cool, and to make the relationship work. And not only was Trudeau very thoughtful in the way that he approached that, but at the time, the Canadian opposition largely said, we're not going to criticize, uh, say, a NAFTA renegotiation, what it is the government's doing. We're going to try to keep an united front, and the conservatives have held to that, at least for now. Even more important, the Canadian public, largely, I'm guessing, don't know about this room, not Trump fans, nonetheless did not try to pull the rug out from under Trudeau, stuck with the strategy, look, Trudeau's got to deal with him, we're just going to hope this all works out. And it didn't make it politically impossible for Trudeau to pursue the strategy. And so with that having been the strategy, I wanted to think about now that we've had a year of this, just about, what are the economic consequences of trying to play nice with Donald Trump? And that gets to NAFTA renegotiation and some of the issues, and I'm gonna to try to lay this out in a somewhat orderly way, talking a little bit about what I think Trump wants or what he, he means for the relationship, a little bit about what I think Trudeau's strategy has been in practice as it's evolved, because I think it has evolved as it's gone along, the consequences of that, where we find ourselves and what it means, and then a little bit of idle speculation about where we go from here, both good scenarios and bad scenarios. So, Donald Trump. Um, Do Donald Trump is, uh, is not a detail man, as you know, and has come in, but, but I think he has surprised some observers, at least in Washington, by having a few ideas of what he wants. Not necessarily on every issue, but he has a few ideas. And in that wonderful, ironic, kind of H.L. Mencken observation, people have discovered that when he said things during the campaign, he actually meant them. And this, of course, is the most appalling uh, sin of a politician to actually say things and mean them and then try to do them. Uh, they're supposed to lie to us, that's what we expect. Um, but, the, uh, but the president campaigned as an economic nationalist, somebody who was gonna put America first, that felt that global economic arrangements, U.S. treaties were putting the U.S. at a disadvantage, in particular U.S. workers, some of his voter base, and he rode that issue, among others, uh, to the White House, and then proceeded to try to take that idea and turn it into an agenda for revising uh, economic relationships. It sounds very different, certainly not what you're used to hearing from American politicians, but it's not that different from something that many Canadians will remember, which is the economic nationalism of the Walter Gordon, Pierre Elliott Trudeau era. Now, I know what you will say if, you, if I give you a chance. Well, we were the small country. Of course, we had to defend ourselves against the American takeover of our economy, American capital. It, it's ridiculous. The US wrote the rules. Now you thought the rules are unfair, but you wrote them, and now you're still the biggest economy out there and you think you're suffering and you want us all to give you more concessions? This is nonsense, I know. But if you, 
if you think about economic nationalism as an appeal to we have to hang together in the face of globalization, we are losing something important, and this is why your government needs to take steps to protect Americans or put Americans first, you get a little bit of why this message resonates with some, with some voters. And as we've gone through the process of scrapping TPP was pretty quick and, and I don't think we'd grown attached to it, but certainly the NAFTA renegotiation, negotiations about uh, our relationship with China, which will over the course of the next year become more important in a revision, I think, US-led revision of how we approach the WTO and perhaps a revision of the WTO itself. Um, you've seen the establishment in Washington, uh, people I know and, and like, begin to sort of split their view of Trump, who they still think is appalling, from some of the validity of his message, that there are people who are out, have been left out of, uh, of the benefits of globalization, that there is some merit to the disenchantment with the establishment, and that maybe there's some, uh, some credibility to this, and there needs to be a response. And, um, and at the same time, Trump has recognized that with China, slowing its growth pattern down and responding with more authoritarianism, which is not going to help. And with Europe still struggling, the U.S. is an engine, potentially, of great economic growth. And as he has been able, through other policies, mostly deregulation, um, regulatory reform, and, and other steps, moved the U.S. back towards what we thought we wouldn't see again in our lifetime, 3% growth, Trump notwithstanding, times look good, more people are happy, and there's, there's something good coming here, and that has given Trump not only something that helps him with his base, but it's given some, him some leverage in talking to trading partners that are also benefiting from the growth, as is Canada's economy, to say you need to keep access to this, we need to keep this going, but it's going to be on new terms. And I think that that has posed a challenge, and I, I was thinking a little bit about Stephen Clarkson. Some of you will remember um, the late professor from the University of Toronto, who was always quite a nice person. Uh, to me, anyway, it was a very nice person. Um, and uh, he has a famous book uh, at the beginning of the Reagan years where he called, it, he called it Canada and the Reagan Challenge. And I thought, actually, instead of going for Keynes, I could go with a Clarkson shout out and call Canada and the, and the Trump Challenge, um, representing this first part of the talk. But then I thought, you know, I gave a great talk at the beginning of the Obama era, and I called it the Obama Opportunity for Canada. And so what I'm going to do now, uh, I'll just foreshadow, is I'm going to talk a little bit about the Trump Opportunity for Canada there is an opportunity here. But first, Trudeau. So what has been the Trudeau strategy? You know this, but it's worth, I think, covering some of uh, the details. Personal relationships with Donald Trump and his most influential immediate advisors. Uh, for a while, that included uh, Rance Prabus, and now it doesn't because Rance is out. But. Um, but the idea being that Trump didn't seem to be an ideological politician or a detail man, so the only way to get a bead on what the administration is about is to understand the person and his immediate advisors. Because Canada's government felt you've got to understand what's coming. We cannot operate if we don't understand what they're coming from. And we have to make the effort to learn, so we'll engage. They anticipated a mercurial administration, we've certainly gotten that, and they knew personal relationships were gonna be crucial. Uh, and they invested in those, not just at the level of Trudeau and Trump, but at other levels as well. Um, second, a commitment to avoid public spats and never to make it personal. This has got to have been very hard because I think any observer uh, in Canada will recognize that in one way at least, your leader has much better hair. And you know, when, if you make it personal, it's very hard to deal with people and, and Trump's hair is I think very important to him such as it is. So. Avoiding personal spats became very important. You saw this in, in Justin Trudeau, who I, I know will not appreciate the comparison, imposing the kind of caucus discipline on his caucus about stray comments about the United States and especially Trump that would have made Harper proud. Because Harper was just as controlling, but, and, and from a similar sense that this is really important, but Trudeau has really enforced that. We're not gonna have silly fights over name calling and so on. And that, that takes energy, it, it takes discipline, and it was a real commitment. And thirdly, and you might call this the hedging strategy for, for the Trudeau government, they've engaged with all the possible centers of power that they can meet with. Members of Congress, senators, governors, state legislators, mayors. And they've really invested personal time of cabinet members, of uh, 
premiers, of premiers of other parties to try to build these relationships as a bulwark against change that goes bad. If things go bad, there are other political voices who might potentially be a counterweight to Trump, potentially, and we could talk about this if you're interested, um, be able to block, say, a unilateral U.S. withdrawal from NAFTA by denying it effect because Congress won't give it effect uh, in legislation. So there, there was a thought, we, we've got a good strategy, but we have a backup, and we're, we're going to approach this with a low-conflict, you know, strategic approach. The benefit of this strategy for Trudeau has been good information flow. I think you go to the Canadian Embassy in Washington, you will get a better read on what's going on inside the White House and inside Congress than you will in almost any other uh, room in the city, certainly the CNN newsroom included. And, um, and they really have invested in that. The downside of the strategy is that one way to interpret our recent election is that it was a rejection of the establishment. And this is a strategy based on engaging the establishment such as it is, and, um, and that, that potentially puts Canada on the wrong side of populist uh, pushback. Uh, and, and there are some areas in which I'm, I worry about that. So how has that played out? Because I, I noted the strategy has evolved. Well, one of the first things that the Trudeau government did anticipating NAFTA renegotiation was to take some hostages, create some issues, disputes that could be resolved, but that would represent for the Trump administration wins when they were resolved. So you take something that's a minor area, uh, the gypsum dispute, does anybody remember this, about wallboard? Anyway, you make it into a dispute, you get people angry, and then you offer to fix it so that Trump gets a win and you've made a problem go away so that you're not giving up essential things on your chips board. You're giving away things that you probably really don't mind fixing anyway. Um, Softwood was, it was played that way. We're, we know it's going to be an issue, we're going to play it, we're going to let the old, the old uh, Softwood agreement go, and we are going to take this on in the hope that we can resolve it and build goodwill. It hasn't played out. Boeing Bombardier, offering maybe Boeing, you could have some uh, fighter jets, we could buy some of those from you, that might buy you off, we could, we could maybe do a deal. That all designed to kind of create the momentum for deal making with someone they thought, Trump, was a deal maker, a great negotiator, like William Shatner for Priceline. He was gonna be the great negotiator and solve the deal. I actually think the two of them are oddly similar. Um, I, I'm sure Bill Shatner would hate me for saying that. So. Um, second, that strategy unfortunately didn't work very well because what it did with an economically nationalist U.S. administration was the U.S. responded in kind and the U.S. was bigger. So it didn't resolve softwood lumber. It actually made it worse by coming up with really heavy dumping margins and playing it to the hilt, playing brinksmanship with it. Boeing Bombardier, yeah, you want to do Boeing Bombardier? We'll bring you an anti-dumping case. How do you like that? And you can see these huge margins. So if you want to play that game with Trump. Trump is more than willing, his administration is more than willing to go right back at you. And that did actually turn out to be not the best start for, for Trudeau. So they learned, they, they kind of took a step back. And the Trudeau government's sort of next kind of gambit was to offer a contrasting vision. And I think this was largely for, for, for you, uh, that is the Canadian public, of, of going into NAFTA, what is it Canada wants? What's Canada's vision for a modernized NAFTA? And it's it, it summed up in this phrase that um, Chrystia Freeland has, has sort of popularized, the progressive trade agenda that includes um, a whole range of progressive issues now being part of the trade agenda. And of course, for, for many of us, environment and labor became part of a NAFTA debate with the Clinton ratification and the creation of side agreements. But they wanted to talk about aboriginal rights in trading and they wanted to talk about other, other issues, environment uh, in terms of climate change regulation. Um, and it, it, it was a kind of a, a bold move. I do think it was mostly for domestic consumption. Um, the trick to it, however, was that it because it was for domestic consumption, it, was, it left a lot of question marks in the U.S. And one of the biggest ones had to, was actually made worse by Unifor, your, your labor union, because of an of a operationalization of putting labor rights in the new NAFTA as the U.S. needs to federally supersede state rules that allow right to work, that is, the right to work without joining a union, no, no mandatory union membership, which of course would make U.S. unions very happy, but makes a lot of the Republican governors in the Midwest who were part of the strategy of courting a, a sort of firewall in the U.S. very upset because that was one of their, their big legacy issues. So it was, some, it was a mixed reaction from that. I, I'm not sure it was, um, it was all well played, but not as damaging as taking hostages. Then comes the next strategy, a sort of playing up of third options. And I say that, and I, you all remember the Pierre Trudeau, the third option, uh, 
beige paper and, and all that. But I, I, mean, I mean that. Canada, in the long run, does need to diversify its trade. That's all to the good. And so CETA moves towards um, provisional implementation. There's the outreach to China, the engagement in the TPP-11, which I think is the positive way of saying TPP-1. Sounds so sad to say minus one, but TPP 11, um, and even continuing engagement on climate policy, saying, you know, we're going to pursue our agenda. We, we have all of these other options. We're not going to be totally uh, hypnotized by what goes on in the U.S. This, is, this has created a kind of uh, an interesting churn as well, because it's led a lot of people in the business community to wonder whether Canada is the potential champion of sanity in the NAFTA negotiation, or Canada is already on, on to plan B, has taken its eye off the ball. And after round five of the NAFTA renegotiations, where the US came out quite harshly saying, you know, Canada's not even coming up with serious proposals, they're, they're not being constructive, we're not getting what we want out of the Canadians, a lot of American business community uh, sort of lobbyists sort of reacted and said, well, it's because Trudeau's off going to China. He's talking about all these other things. He's planning for what happens when NAFTA withdrawal comes, which, of course, many people worry about. He's not in the game. And so the strategy keeps evolving, um, and it, it hasn't always played out well, but I give the Trudeau government credit for sticking to it. So what's the consequence of all of this evolution? And uh, I'll be very brief here because I'm, I'm sure I'm going to run out of time. First. Five minutes, so I do this in five, no problem. First, I think the Trudeau Sunny Ways approach to uh, Donald Trump um, puts for, it does communicate, but what it communicates is that Canada needs good relations with the United States. And the unity of Canadians behind that idea, yes, we want to get along with you. That is our message. Unfortunately, if you are a schoolyard bully Trump type, it also means, I want to get along with you, please like me, which means I'm vulnerable. Trump um, is an interesting guy, as you know. He, he went out and took some shots at Canada, uh, saying that you were being really nasty to us on energy. I have no idea what that meant. I don't think he did either. But what he, what he did was he tried, he tried attacking Canada. You don't see that much from American politicians, even when we disagree with you, because everybody knows, oh, Canada's our best friend. What, you pick on Canada, what would you do, kick a bunny? Trump would kick the bunny. <laughs> and, and what he's demonstrated is you need good relations with him, he does not need good relations with you. And that, I think, is foolish in the long run, but strategically it's dangerous now. And in doing that, he's then turned that to putting Canada on the defensive as often as he possibly can. And what I would like to see the Trudeau government doing, which it has not done, is to capitalize on the opportunities not to take hostages, but to show that getting along with Canada is something that Trump wants, to counter his feeling that he doesn't need Canada as much as Canada needs him, which you'll hear from Wilbur Ross and, and his whole administration. How could you do that? Coming on to Jim's turf, defense spending. Trump went on and on about burden sharing, 2% Wales commitment, Canada comes up with a defense review and doesn't make 1%. Hello, that's we we are obsessed with security. Give us something, and but it wasn't there. Um, tag team with the U.S. You heard this actually from uh, Wilbur Ross a couple after round four. Why isn't Canada, which is losing automotive jobs to Mexico, just the way the U.S. Midwest is? Why isn't it constructively trying to figure out how to get more upper North American content and less Mexican content? Why aren't you on our team? Don't you get it? This is a fight over jobs, and it's a fight over working class jobs, and it's a fight over manufacturing. And you could be our ally, and you're not. You're actually trying to help the Mexicans keep things the way they are. That was an opportunity for Canada to, to grab a piece of Trump's agenda and deliver something positive. Bridging relationships with the European Union, particularly over Brexit. Obviously, Brexit's a problem. Trump seems to enjoy annoying uh, Theresa May and, and Brits generally. But there, there are some issues, third-party issues, non-North American issues, Afghanistan obviously being one for previous administrations, where Canada can make a contribution, seem, be seen to be helping to solve a problem that's on uh, Trump's radar, and therefore um, it's important for Trump to get along with you. Two other examples. Um, I think UN reform and World Trade Organization reform is coming. Canada can get out ahead of that and be part of bridging the gap between where Trump thinks these programs have failed and, and where we can improve them. And the hardest one, but I think there are a lot of things you can do symbolically that would be helpful, North Korea. I know it's a tough one. No one wants to deal with North Korea. But um, Trump is playing brinksmanship and Canada is 
is pretty silent. And General Sanamon kind of tried to bring this into the Canadian debate by reminding people that the U.S. is under no obligation to shoot down a missile, even if it was capable of shooting down a missile that might accidentally be aiming for Seattle and hit Vancouver. I think the scare talk is, is, was well-intentioned, not necessarily effective. But, but for Canada to say, yes, we're in this too, and, and we can engage, and I guess this bridges us talking about missile defense, uh, it, it, be on the side and say, look, we're on the American team. We're not on the North American team, North Korean team, I think would be helpful. Um, okay, so where are we going with this? And I'll just briefly talk about the bad news and the good news. The bad news is I think it's entirely possible that Trump will drive you crazy and that the U.S. economic nationalism will drive Canadians to become more economically nationalist. And I worry a lot about what I call the NAFTA split scenario where uh, Robert Lighthizer or Wilbur Ross or Donald Trump says or tweets, you know, Canada's raised all these great issues about NAFTA, and we haven't thought about progressive trade agenda, and we still haven't really solved Boeing Bombardier, and Softwood's still out there, and we know how difficult it is for Canada. And some Canadians, including some people close to the Prime Minister, have said, well, we're not in a hurry. Why rush to a bad deal? NAFTA status quo is not so bad. So we're going to suspend talks with Canada, negotiate a bilateral with Mexico, do it by the deadline for their election, wait till after our midterms, and then we'll come back and restart talks with Canada. And the end result is two bilateral agreements, NAFTA dead, Trump wins, and because we already have North American supply chains, this is not NAFTA one where we didn't have quite so many, now we really do, every firm will recognize that the only content that counts in two different rules of origin, which are gonna be slightly quirky so that you can't, is US content. And then you bring in this tax reform that the Congress is now going into reconciliation, which provides a benefit for American companies and international companies to repatriate profit from overseas, and they'll cash out of a marginal economy like Canada's, and they'll bring the plants back to the U.S. because it's the only safe thing to do. And if you think it's General Motors, that's one thing, but it'll be Magna. It'll be a lot of other manufacturers doing the same thing. So I, I worry about that. Now, what would that do? Because that negotiation to salvage this with a Canada-US bilateral deal in after the US midterms would be in the run-up to your next federal election, I think it could drive the conservatives to the space that the liberals used to have. John Turner will be just shaking his head. Because the conservatives will say, you, you know, Harper was right, you weren't ready. You fell for the hub and spoke. We are going to stand up for Canadians. We're going to take the economic nationalist point of view and and taint the liberals as being so eager to get along with Trump that they screwed it all up. And that will be politically more dangerous to Trudeau because the conservatives have 100 seats, because they're sitting on a ton of money, so they won't be disadvantaged than Jagmeet Singh, who I know is a super cool hipster. But the danger comes from being able to mobilize that kind of vote. So I, that's bad. Um, I think Canadian manufacturing is, is at risk in general, uh, depending on how the rule of origin is written. Agriculture, Canadian agricultural exports are written and are, are in danger. And I also think Canadian energy is in danger. And something that we haven't really taken on board is that in the post-war integration of our economies, we were partners in producing things that we sold to ourselves and the rest of the world. What's beginning to happen is that we are rivals in producing the same things and trying to sell them to the same people. We've always been that on grain with the Canadian Wheat Board and so on. We've always tried to sell our grain to the same people with basically similar grain. We're now starting to compete in energy sales abroad, LNG, et cetera. It, it is potentially gonna change the relationship. And then on climate, you guys are gonna tax carbon. You, you'll, you'll put the climate burden on your economy and we won't. I hate to say it, but Harper was kind of right. It doesn't make sense in an integrated economy for you to have a different approach than we do, even if yours is more virtuous, because we will ultimately take that competitive advantage and take you to the cleaners. So the U.S. will be indifferent to this strategy, but I, I see that that's what happens if this all goes wrong. What could we do that's different? My last points, and I know I'm over time. First, I think if we could recognize that the Trump administration is a challenge to Canada that is primarily, no offense to Jim, economic. And that there is an economic crisis of globalization that affects Canada in a real way, and it requires a focused strategy. Second, Canada could demonstrate its relevance to the U.S. and use the policymaker engagement that Trudeau has, has, has developed with Congress and with uh, state leaders to communicate Canada's policy relevance. Look at what we're doing for you. I know you shouldn't have to sell yourselves. It's not your Canadian way. It's more the American way. We always tout ourselves. But you should do that. Third, something that Trudeau should get. Trump is about symbolic politics in a way that we haven't seen since Ronald Reagan. He knows about the visual, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. It's symbolic. That's what gets Trump going. 
that's what Trudeau understood by having a, a women's business and entrepreneurship Canada-US forum at his first meeting. Now, it was making Ivanka happy. It was giving Trump some cover on women's issues where he wasn't very strong, but it was symbolic and it made Trump happy. There are ways that you can play the symbolic relationship and do very well. Why aren't we having a summit in Colorado Springs declaring that the Canada-US defense relationship is about military, but also about homeland security and also about law enforcement, and Canada more than carries its share of the burden, and we're all united against radicalization of our own kids, and we're all against cyber bullies and all that. To, make, to take the Canada-US relationship out and say it's special, play the game, give Trump the wins that don't cost you anything and you'll be better off. Remember that you're hosting the G7 meeting uh, this year in Charlevoix, and there's an opportunity for Canada's leadership help Trump look good and build some bridges with some of the other G7 countries, most of whom don't like him, poor Angela Merkel. And, um, and, you, and Trudeau could maybe be a bridge builder. Expect the unexpected with Trump and look for opportunities. Trump's regulatory reform at home, slashing regulations, is a perfect platform for Canada's regulatory cooperation to be reframed as reducing regulatory burden and moving by not having double inspections and not having double standards and duplicative rules and cutting red tape. You could win by telling him, look, great idea, boss. This is what we're doing. And it's the same old thing, but it's now his idea and he looks good. Similarly, uh, we haven't had a president who's been more open to the idea of facilitating trade at the border since Bush. And Bush was until 9-11. And then after 9-11, we got serious. And then after uh, Obama came in, he couldn't afford to be the Democrat who went soft on border security. And so we've done things, but we haven't done them well. Trump's about business. He's going to facilitate trade, even potentially labor mobility if it's, uh, if it's classy. So uh, there's potential there. And, um, and one last thought to think about, and this is just for the historians among you. I, I want to give a shout out to Jack Granitstein and, and Artie Cuff. Do you remember Cuff and Granitstein? They had a great book where they talked about Canada's relations, and they introduced this idea that was really pro prevalent in the, in the 50s and 60s, or at least they saw it. It's the idea of exemptionalism that for presidents of the United States who didn't have a very firm view of Canada but liked it, Canada could say, you know what, uh, this new idea of yours, uh, you, you're going to hurt us a lot. You didn't really mean to aim at us. We know you're aiming at the Europeans or the Chinese or, or whatever. You, could you just like exempt us? And Congress, administrations would say, yeah, 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 Canada doesn't count. We're not, this doesn't apply to Canada and, and let you off the hook. We haven't had a president with less, I think, serious thought about Canada in a while and he, he doesn't have an animus against you. So why couldn't we try exemptionalism? Say, oh yeah, you know, NAFTA, well you want to stick it to the Mexicans, okay. Well let's leave Canada out of it because you know, automotive supply chain, it's, it's too messy, you don't want to do it. And I think there's room to actually even promote that idea. So lots of potential in Trump and that's it. That was a panel discussion from the year ahead an international security, intelligence, and defense outlook for 2018 recorded at the Canadian War Museum.